You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Charles Barber, who is a writer in residence at Wesleyan University and also is, I think, a lecturer in psychiatry at the Yale Medical School. Is that correct? That's right, Greg. And also the author of a number of books, a couple new books. This one is called In the Blood, How Two Outsiders Solved the Centuries-Old Medical Mystery and Took on the U.S. Army. We've also got another new book. It's called Peace and Health, which is subtitled How a Group of Small-Town Activists and College Students Set Out to Change Healthcare, which is really, I guess it's kind of the official history of the Community Health Center based in Middleton. And also this book here, Comfortably Numb, How Psychiatry is Medicating a Nation. Also, Songs from the Black Chair and Citizen Outlaw. Welcome, Charles. Thank you so much. So in this latest book, In the Blood, although your expertise is in psychiatry, this is a completely different domain of medicine, which has to do with trauma. And I think you point out in the book that unlike so many other areas of medicine where we've seen lots of progress, right, whether it be psychiatry or surgical interventions, the area of trauma, there, there hasn't really been a whole lot of progress. And if we look at what the standard of care is, it's not that much different from what it might have been a couple hundred years ago. I mean, obviously, there are some changes. We don't cauterize wounds with boiling oil. We don't just lop off limbs at the, with the first sign of injury. But when it comes to blood loss, the standard of care was apply pressure and gauze. And until fairly recently, it was the same thing. So is there something special about this area of medicine that has made it difficult for there to be any kind of real progress? I think I learned and I didn't know a whole lot about it. What I do as a writer is find interesting stories that have story elements that I'm interested in and then dig deep and do the research. So I had no idea, but you're exactly right. And I write about it in, in the blood that in the area of traumatic volume bleeding, bleeding that can kill you in five minutes if it's not stopped or battlefield bleeding. And for that matter, car accidents and gunshot wounds. I learned that essentially the tools to use them works until recently extremely primitive and basically unchanged going back to the Trojan War in terms of battlefield medicine, pressure and gauze. And so if you actually look at pictures of the tools used in the Civil War or the Trojan War, or for that matter, the Vietnam War, they're exactly the same. So that came as a total surprise to me. And it wasn't really until I quote, William Mayo, that Dr. Mayo, that the only victor of war is medicine. And there's a huge history of extraordinary advances coming out of war medicine, from chemotherapy to burn medicine, to plastic surgery, to penicillin, either invented or advanced out of war medicine. So the Iraq war was volume bleeding's turn, traumatic bleeding's turn. And I begin the book with the Battle of Mogadishu, which was a very small battle in the history of warfare, but it shone the light on the particularly the U.S. Army's inability to stop 
soldiers from bleeding out. And therein began a sort of decade-long campaign led by the U.S. Army, but other branches involved as well, at least a quarter of a billion dollars spent on it to try and stop traumatic bleeding on the battlefield. And 30 agents were tested and developed, some by the military, some by biotech companies. And the story of my book is the least likely people actually come up with the solution, the least medical, the least military, to down-on-their-luck 50-year-old inventors. But to specifically answer your question, in terms of branches of medicine, I quote in the book one of the kind of deans of hematology, a guy called Demetrios Dimitriades at USC, who's interested in historical context. He's a scientist, but he's also interested in historical and social context of things like hematology. And he says that the two areas of medicine that have the worst research are hematology or trauma medicine in particular, and psychiatry, <laughs> the two areas that I've sort of written about. And he has a very practical and very intuitive reason for that. It's almost impossible to conduct research on double-blind studies on trauma. You're trying to save people's lives. How do you design a study ethically and compare agents? And also, I think, as I say in the book, the people that are drawn to surgery tend to be, I'll be blunt, cowboys, the cowboys of medicine. The people that are drawn to trauma medicine are the cowboys and the cowboys. And then the people drawn to military trauma medicine are the cowboys of the cowboys of the cowboys, by which I mean they're doers, not necessarily inclined to research, and appropriately so in many cases. You can't stand around saying, what are we going to do with the placebo group or whatever? So the circumstances of the problem don't lend themselves to easy research. But the fact is, one of the fundamental problems of existence, not only medicine, how to keep blood in the body, was fundamentally unsolved over two millennia. Right. And I was surprised to find out that there is so much medical research that takes place beneath the military. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. So there's this Institute of Surgical Research right? So we've got the NIH and we've got a couple other governmental bodies that sponsor research. The military presumably has to deal with battlefield injuries, right? And so is that why this area of research has traditionally been underneath the supervision of the military? Sure. I mean, all, as I was to learn, all military branches have obviously their doctors and their medical personnel. The army has a sort of a different tradition, to generalize, as I learned about Navy and Marine medicine, and to be clear, Marines don't have their own medicine. They borrow Navy personnel to work at Quantico, for example. So they're kind of interchangeable at that level. So the Navy medicine, which is very large, but in terms of a research approach to generalize, or at least the part of it that I wrote about in terms of trauma, they take 90% of their money and they farm it out to experts across the country at universities or whatever, and 10% is in-house. At least during the Iraq War, and at least for this institute that you refer to that is a big part of my story, the Institute of Surgical Research that the Army runs in Texas, it was the exact opposite. It was 90% in-house, 10% what they call extramural. So a lot of it was research being conducted by the Army 
a lot of it published in a journal dominated by army doctors called the Journal of Trauma. And again, I guess it's one of those surprises how much of it was in-house and not that was not the tradition that I came across with the other service branches. Right. And I think you point out that the way in which this particular institute was run under John Holcomb, it was run in a very different way from, say, other research institutes, for better or for worse. Is it better to have, I mean, when we think about checks and balances, we think about bureaucracy, we think about the things that could potentially slow down, right, execution, having someone who is a commander (laughs) instead of just a leader, that would seem to be, in some cases, a good thing. What can we learn about how these institutes are run, the different ways in which they're run? What can we learn about what organizational form is best. Yeah. And so you're referring to at the Institute of Surgical Research and the army has a number of these institutes of different types of medicine around the country. And at least at the one on trauma medicine, the person who runs it is called a commander. And unless it's changed, they run it like a commander. They have, it's like a commander of an army battalion. And so there's not the typical sort of checks and balances, at least in the part of the story that I wrote about. And you can understand culturally where that comes from in terms of how the military gets things done. And I think it's a positive and a negative. In the case of the Iraq war, the commander of the Institute, that they made mistakes in terms of their pursuing a blood clotting agents, both of the ones that they went into in the Iraq war ended up failing. And the one that I write about that's the subject of the book was critiqued and not adopted by the army and ended up winning and is now in the first aid kit of every soldier. But it took a big fight with the army to do it. But flip side, the commander of the Institute advocated for tourniquets that had very much fallen out of favor and had a kind of a stigma around them. And there were very primitive tourniquets used in Vietnam and World War II that were kind of horror stories, you know, like basically almost like leather belts and things like that. And civilian practice probably mocking following the military had really fallen out of favor with tourniquets. But no one seemed to have noticed that there have been tremendous advances in tourniquets in terms of their ease of use and efficiency and lightweight and so on. And so the commander of the Institute, Holcomb, advocated hugely for these the reintroduction of tourniquets that is now a common practice on the streets of America by EMTs and so on. And so I think in my story, you see the flip side. You see the charisma and the force of personality of a person able to adopt things and really go against a culture that had been created that was, like I say, it, was, it seemed almost stigmatized tourniquets. And then in the case of what I write about in the blood clotting, an inability to adopt a product that all the other service branches very quickly adopted and had a lot of success with. And I think the lesson is the military model when applied to clinical practice is probably not going to work most of the time. You need to have a much broader tent. Well, look, I mean, this is a story about the discovery and diffusion of a major advancement right, in medical technology. And I think most people who have a naive view of science think that that's 
the way things work, right? You know, you come up with a better mousetrap and everybody beats a path to your door. And then before you know it, that becomes the standard. And then when you look behind the scenes, you, you realize that it's usually a lot more complicated. And there's a lot of great stories about the military and how the military has failed to adopt new technology. You talk about the AR-15 story, right, during the Vietnam War. You talk about Langley and getting all the money instead of the Wright brothers. I've heard stories about, I think it was the repeating rifle in the Civil War, right, which would have saved, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of lives, but was not adopted by the Army. So maybe we can recount this story. So you have these kind of two heroes of the book, Frank Hursley and Bart Gulong, and they're kind of like an odd couple, right? And I think if you only had one of them, the story would never have come to pass, right? So there's sort of a subtext in the book about how a successful company or successful discovery requires a combination of personalities where one is sort of the goofy discoverer and the scientist and the aloof scientist, and the other one is sort of the more outgoing sales type person. Before we got to the quick clotting discovery, they were successful with this oxygen machine I was wondering if you could just tell that story, because I, I was fascinated by how they were able to get their foot in the door into this military procurement complex, because my understanding was that the only companies that could really get access to military procurement were these companies that specialized right, in the procurement process. And that was sort of their competitive advantage was they understood how to get through all of the paperwork. Yeah. So the heart of the story is the invention and the deployment and creating a product out of a brilliant idea and the combination of talent. So as you say, Frank Hersey, who's late seventies now, but this is 1983 and he's using a simple mineral called zeolite to separate gases in machines. He makes oxygen enriched gas for industrial purposes, primarily for medical purposes. So basically he pressurizes air through a sieve of zeolite. It absorbs other gases in the air and creates an oxygen enriched product. And he's amazing at this. He didn't invent that exact technology, but he perfects it. And he does it basically completely on his own. He's working out of an obscure industrial park in a dingy Connecticut. He has a bachelor's degree in engineering. He's not part of any scientific community. He's never published anything. He's barely getting by, frankly. He's making these great machines, but he has no ability to market them. How I explained it, not that I explained it so well, he would not be able to explain it. He would get into the weeds and the molecules and you'd wouldn't really understand. This is not the kind of guy who's going to win a Nobel Prize in medicine. No, for reasons that I write about towards the end of the book. In terms of what he's achieved, he might be eligible for one, but he's completely out of the scientific and medical community and structure, and still is, really, until the book came along. So he thinks in 1983, in his basement in Connecticut, he thinks this zeolite, which, think of it like kitty litter, it looks like kitty litter, it absorbs things really well. Maybe it'll absorb the water in blood, thereby leaving the platelets and the clotting factors, thereby turbocharging the blood clotting process. And no one had ever thought of this in, well, ever. And all of the work primarily being done by the military, going back to World War II to promote the clotting process, 
was adding stuff, mainly bioengineered clotting factors that are incredibly expensive to produce. They're derived from animals. There were issues of infection from animal to human and so on. So, but now this in itself is puzzling, right? Because, you know, we think about pharmaceutical companies that will, they'll try out hundreds of thousands of compounds, right? In a typical year looking for efficacy. Why didn't anybody think to let's just try out a whole bunch of different substances on blood and see what happens? Is it just because it was such a paradigm shift, right? It was just the methodology was just very different from what people were thinking about? It was a not only a paradigm shift, it was unthinkable. If you had a medical degree or a PhD, essentially what Frank did, and what he did, by the way, is he bought this zeolite, he got the zeolite, he bought a mouse from a pet store, he cut the mouse in his basement as his wife was shrieking upstairs, he poured the zeolite into the mouse, the blood turns into essentially jello because his basic instinct was correct that it absorbed the water thereby turbocharging the clotting process, the blood clots in within seconds, 10, 20 seconds, the mouse survived and hopped off the next day. But had he had a PhD or an MD, the idea of putting an industrial product, this was a, a product that he was using in his machines. So Frank was thinking as a mechanical engineer, sort of like the drawings of Leonardo of the human body. It's just a machine. So he was thinking, and he's not the most social guy, you know, he's a reserved, pure analyst. So he's probably literally thinking of the body as a machine. And he would have lost his medical license. He's putting a rock into the bloodstream. And I think the other thing, it's the lesson here, it's the complete outsider. We live in this age of experts and you've got to have PhDs and MDs and everything often two at the same time. And we don't pay attention the way we did even 100 years ago to people that don't necessarily have the credentials, but they've got the insight. And I call them in the book, the Ringo Starr of inventors. It's this sort of this brilliant simplicity. And he didn't even really know much about the blood clotting process. Even today, he gets it wrong as he, you know, we've been on the circuit. He'll say, you know, blood is 90% water and that's why I did it. It's about 50% water. So he's not a medical scientist, but he had this brilliant insight that no one in history had ever thought of. I remember this episode of Nova many years ago where they were trying to recreate the awnings over the Roman Colosseums, right? And so they went to an actual amphitheater in Tunisia, I think it was, and they had three people. One was a, I think it was an engineer from MIT. One was an architect from Harvard. And one was a circus tent person from London, you know, no degrees whatsoever. And you know how the story ended, right? Of course, that the first two could not figure out how to make this thing work. And the third guy figured it out almost right away. And it's this whole story that, that I tell it in the blood is very similar to the Wright brothers. So you, the Wright brothers were high school graduates from Ohio. They were made bikes and they knew how to put an airplane together and they were complete outsiders. And very similar to my story, it took years and years, even after they'd proven it, to actually get the contract with the U.S. government. And so the other point that you mentioned, it's a story of teamwork because you've got Frank with this era-changing insight. He does that in 1983, and he proves it with his mouse, but then he also used to work at Hartford Hospital. 
and he works with a doctor there. They get permissions to do research. They tested the product on pigs and rabbits and formally, and they see that it works. But he has, he's not part of any scientific community. This is not written up. This is not published. He writes a patent. and But then the patent expires because he can't afford to keep it going. And he tries to market it. Nobody pays any attention. It's not until he meets the other protagonist of the book, Bart Gulong, almost 20 years later. Bart is, who's in his early 70s now, Bart is technically very gifted, but he's not a scientist, but he had actually invented some products. But he'd be the first to say he's not first and foremost a scientist or a technologist. He was the marketing guy. He was the the guy with the swagger who broke the military down, got it to the attention of the military contractors. And he personally, he was in his early 50s when he met Frank, and he was really down on his luck. He'd had quite a lot of success in a variety of fields as a young man, but he'd had 10 or 15 years in the wilderness. And his he was unemployed for a year. His bank account was dwindling. He would had a lot of ups and downs in his personal life. So he was obsessed with, it was sort of his last shot. And so he was the guy that took Frank's idea that it was literally an expired patent at that point and probably, and would never have happened. We would not be having this conversation and developed it and broke down the military, like literally broke down the military. And I'm probably giving the story away. The company that made the product was sold for more than half a billion dollars two years ago. So that was the result of this teammanship. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And I think also part of the story is sort of the contrast between the key players in the army and the key players in these other branches of the military. So what was it about the way that the Navy or the Marines approached this compared to the way the army approached it? That's a huge, huge, huge part of the story is, and I sort of use them interchangeably because it's they're technically Navy medics and doctors who work for the Marines, but there's three that I profile. A guy called Tom Eagles, who died of the effects of Agent Orange about seven years ago, who was a medic in Vietnam, and then retired, so to speak, to become, to preside over the first redesign of the first aid kit for the Marines since whenever, 50 years. And then a Navy doctor who ran a platoon from Kuwait to Iraq, setting up the medical supply chain before the start of the Iraq war. And then a guy at Quantico working at the Marines Warfighting Laboratory, also had a Navy medic who had been in combat all over the world and special missions all over the world, who designed the test that tested the various clotting agents against each other. And the zeolite products snuck in at the last moment and defeated all these other highly expensive, highly bioengineered products. So it's these three Marine slash Navy medical people who are the true heroes of the story from a institutional point of view. And they all have a lot in common and in stark contrast to most of the army people and the bloated army bureaucracy so all three of them, Coakley, Eagles, and Decorda are their names, had been in the shit, as they say, in combat. Particularly, I mean, they all combat is combat. Eagles had been, he had won four Purple Hearts and 
won the Distinguished Flying Cross, the only medic probably in history to do so when the pilot in the helicopter was killed and he helped land the helicopter in Vietnam. It kind of like the guy at the Coliseum. They're very bright, sophisticated doctors and medics, but their primary expertise was in deploying things. And they were interested in research, but they were only interested in things that worked in the field. They also, curiously to me, they all shared a Catholic underdog background or under, underdog background that happened to be Catholic. Coakley, who's an emergency surgeon, went to a Catholic high school, almost flunked out, didn't get his medical degree until he was age 40, and then was in Iraq six months later. Eagles, the medic in Vietnam who died a few years ago, poor kid from upstate New York, went to, first went to Vietnam as a Catholic brother, decided he wasn't going to do that and went back as a medic. Decorda went to a Jesuit college. And they're, so they're all combination of sort of outsiders and seeing things in a different way. And Decorda had been in the Peace Corps before he joined the Navy. So they're all three of them are outsiders. And I think they're coming from the empirical Catholic tradition, the Aquinas tradition to some degree, what works. And also just the imperative of the Marines historically is, and again, I learned all of this, the Marines were have had to fight for their very existence basically from the beginning, even after their iconic successes. They seem to be more resource constrained as well. Huge, hugely. And working in terms of the research budget for trauma medicine, it's hard to quantify these things because in times of war, there's, they call them plus ups and various sort of special funding that they get from congressional ways of various kinds, but probably we'll just say it's a fraction of the budget. So they're just looking at what works. And one of the reasons they don't go in for the very expensive things that the army went in, these high-tech blood clotting things that eventually failed, is they just didn't have the budget. They didn't have the money for it. And the quick clot that was produced out of the zeolite, which, by the way, was deployed very early in the Iraq war and saved a lot of lives, was like $15 a packet. And so it was sort of this kismet of two outsider inventors with no credentials, basically doing things that would allow them to lose their medical license had they had a medical license, putting a rock in the bloodstream, and then meeting up over over a number of years with these three outsider medical people that were, what they all shared was combat, raw combat experience. And an intolerance for the bureaucracy if it got in the way of the phrase that they all used independently, saving the kids in the ditch and the dying soldier that someone has forgotten about, the guys in Mogadishu who had bled out. And the implicit thing is they had all once been the kids in the ditch themselves. So I'm a lefty professor. I didn't know much about the military other than my father was a uh, World War II combat veteran. I suppose I shared certain stereotypes about, stupidly, about the military. I was blown away by the expertise, the heart, the tenacity of this branch of Navy Marines medicine. And Decorda in particular, who was really the guy that designed the study that found the clotting agent that is now in every first aid kit. I do a lot of interviews. I would have to be on my freaking toes interviewing him. He would talk about the blood clotting cascade better, in my opinion, than the, the world-famous hematologists I spoke to. 
Then he would talk about an, an example from combat. Then he would quote Aquinas and then he'd quote Dostoevsky like in a single interview. And I teach at these fancy places. This guy is beyond belief. And so it was a wonderful education for me, but it's a cautionary tale about the bureaucracy of the military's inability. Eventually they caught up. This isn't the good guys won, the good product won, but at what cost? And it took years to break down the bureaucracy. Well, what I found interesting is that the product was initially adopted without what we would think of as a comprehensive clinical trial. The study was relatively small. It was very persuasive, but it was persuasive enough for them to take action. And after they had more evidence, then the army was still reluctant to adopt it. So why weren't there the kind of clinical trials that you would expect to see for products like this? Is there something about, is it because it was classified differently? I think it was time of war. And at, to technically answer your question, what got it, it was an enormously quick time frame. So Bart and Frank got the zeolite out of the barrel in their dismal workshop in Connecticut in February 2002. It was tested by the Marine slash Navy in March 2002. It was approved by the FDA as a medical device in May, two months later, and it was in Iraq with soldiers about four months later. So from barrel to deployment in six months, that would never happen outside during peacetime. And there was a letter written by the commandant of the Marines based on the trial, and a small trial, as you say, but very convincing, that it was mission critical. So that was sent to the FDA. So I think that was technically how it was sprung, but it was also given basic safety testing by the FDA for toxicity. And it was given a clean bill of health in that regard. But I think it's time of war. But I think also if you dig into a lot of medicines, there's not the robust testing that you might think. We think there's tens of thousands of people that things are tested on. And it, in my experience, that it, and that's rarely the case. And also, I think there's a black market, right, for quick clot, wasn't there, where the army folks and the people from other militaries were trying to get their hands on it because the word about the efficacy spread relatively quickly. Yeah. So the soldiers in Iraq heard about it. it initially, it was only the Marines and the Navy that had it. And it's very effective. It does. It turns blood into jello rather quickly. And people were surviving wounds that were not being survived in other wars. There's medical case studies of soldiers losing entire limbs and surviving, using, losing a leg from just below the hip and being given quick clot. And it stops the bleeding, the femoral artery. And so there was a black market that happened where Joe DeCorda, the Marine guy who designed the study, is back in Quantico, and he's getting calls from Army folks. Can you please send us shipments of Quicklot to Iraq? And then British soldiers were trading booze to get it. And so, you know, it's the end user. They know what's going on. And I do need to say that the original formulation of Quicklot, based out of this zeolite product, this very simple, cheap mineral, had one problem, which has now since been corrected. Well, it had two problems. One, it was a powder like kitty litter, and it would have to get cleaned out of the wound, debrided, as they say. 
and not an ideal thing to put a sand-like product in the middle of the desert with winds. And so the mode of transmission was not ideal. But the bigger issue at times, but it was completely overblown by the army, was that it could cause burns in the surrounding tissue of the wound at times second degree burns. Again, the soldiers and the Marines were saying, I don't give a damn if I'm bleeding out, a wound, a burn that I'm going to survive is fine. And there was a study done by Navy Medicine that found of 103 uses of the zeolite based quick clot, there were only three significant burns and only one required two weeks of follow up. But it could cause heat and discomfort, no doubt about it. And the inventors and the guys at the Marines who championed the product never took issue with that. What happened was they developed, really led now by Navy Medicine in 2008, they found another mineral that clotted blood probably even slightly better than the first one and had zero burns, zero side effects. It's actually kaolin out of, same thing as kaopectate. And it could also be impregnated into the gauze. So it they solved both issues, slam dunk. Even the army at that point in 08 adopts it as what they call the hemostatic agent of choice. Hence, the company was sold for half a billion dollars a couple of years ago. Yeah. And of course, it was only worth half a billion dollars after the usage had diffused to the broader medical community. But, you know, that took some time as well. So I'm surprised by sort of the speed or lack thereof of diffusion within the medical community. So sometimes it seems like there are these hot new ideas that spread very quickly, and then there are others that fail to get adopted because of uh, inherent conservatism in clinical care. I would say not just conservatism, I would say prejudice. So I mentioned the stigma around the tourniquets, and they're still with quick clot, which is now technically called quick clot combat gauze. It's still having a hard time penetrating into like surgery and things like that, because it has the stigma from the elite medical world of, oh, that's an EMT product. That's a military product. That's down market. That's day class A. And I make the point, you mentioned the Nobel prize. So Frank, is a very wealthy man now and he's given a lot of his money away. He has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Hartford. He just won an honorary doctorate from the University of Hartford two months ago, which is wonderful. He, in 2003, when Quicklot was making its way to Iraq, he got a four-sentence write-up in Scientific American as one of the 50 inventors of the year. What I just said other than my book, is the entirety of the recognition that he has gotten from the scientific community. If you look at Nobel Prize winners in medicine, there's people who have won the Nobel Prize for a lot less than that. This, It's going back to the impossibility of conducting research in trauma. God knows how many lives Quick Clot has saved. There's no way to compare. There's no, you know, but it is used at maybe half of the mass shootings now. It was used at the Boston Marathon shooting. It was used at the Mandalay hotel shooting in Las Vegas. There was a terrible shooting in Miami in, I think, June. It was used there. It was used in the Gabby Gifford shooting. It's in many police departments and EMTs. I don't know, maybe a third, maybe a half. It's hard to say. If I didn't put it in the book because there's no way for me to back it up, but I think it's probably saved 10,000 lives. I have no idea, but 
perhaps way more than that. And people have won the Nobel Prize for a lot less than saving 10,000 lives. But he hasn't even gotten really any recognition from the scientific community because he's a mechanical engineer and he's not at Harvard or Yale or the University of Connecticut or Berkeley or the University of Oklahoma, you know, a major research institution. It doesn't just have to be Ivy League. And so there's a prejudice that they still hit up against. Well, look, you lecture in psychiatry, so maybe I can ask you to analyze the kind of tragic figure in the book, John Holcomb. And I think in the book, Comfortably Numb, right, you hypothesize, you offer up some theories about why the pharmaceutical interventions have more or less won out relative to the non-pharmaceutical interventions. And of course, a lot of it has to do with money. I don't think John Holcomb was taking any money from the companies that created a HemCon or Factor 7. So what accounts for the kind of stubbornness that someone like that might have in terms of their viewpoint? I think at the end of the day, it's less about a John Holcomb and the system that creates and a John Holcomb operates in. So as I mentioned, he and the person running that institute now is a commander and they truly have extraordinary powers to, unless things have changed, to manage things. Then you add within the military, the arrogant swagger and might of the army, as opposed to the other branches. So you've got the Marines who have literally, Harry Truman tried to shut down the Marines after World War II, after the Pacific. He had a hatred of the Marines personally, but there, there was really a risk that the Marines would be shut down. Then you add the iconic success of the U.S. Army in World War I, World War II, maybe not so much lately, or Desert Storm. We're just going to steamroll. We're just going to do the ground war. We're just going to wipe things out. Then you add that the U.S. Army precedes the nation itself, was created before the United States, and in some ways greater than the United States, you could argue. Then you add American Medicine and Novo Nordisk, which is a Danish company uh, that created this high-tech clotting factor that the army went into using in on soldiers in Iraq, the opposing product to quick clot in 04, 05 through 06, 07. And you have American Medicine or wherever the drugs are made, money is king, marketing is king. And in this case, with the use of Factor Seven, the, the drug that the army went into, the Novo Nordisk got into serious legal trouble with the Department of Justice was part of a lawsuit, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice against Novo Nordisk for its off-label marketing of the drug to the army and others, but primarily the army, led to a $25 million settlement. So you have these money and power, and then you've got two guys with no education in in that area who have no marketing dollars, no clout, which one is going to win? And so I think it's hubris. And I think it's also the lack of regulation in very technically of off-label use of drugs, because the Factor 7 was used off-label, not for its FDA-prescribed FDA use. So it's this Wild West scenario. Then you add 
the licenses that military medicine will use during times of warfare. And sometimes those licenses have led to incredible payoffs with that history that I mentioned a while ago of extraordinary advances. So I see it as more of a uniquely American, unregulated system that creates this problem with dollars, frankly, right at the center of it. And as I mentioned towards the end of the book, in my view, none of those things have changed. This story wrapped up in 08, and none of those factors seem to have changed whatsoever. Well, your book, Comfortably Numb, was also published in 2008. And I was commenting earlier about how it seems like that book has aged very well. It may have been that the phenomenon you described, the empire of serotonin, may have been at its peak with the publication of Prozac Nation and so forth. It seems, if anything, we've seen the use of these medications go up and the kind of symptoms that have led to their prescription and use have also gone up. Do you even need to revise the book other than to just change the names and the statistics and the dates? Probably not. I've sort of moved on. So I don't know the raw numbers anymore, but my guess is they're as you say, the same or higher. There's now the epidemic of COVID or the pandemic of COVID has a concurrent epidemic or pandemic of mental health issues. I, as a college teacher, I see it all the time. Again, I don't think the sort of basic situations have changed in terms of the television marketing of drugs and the mechanics of how this all sort of happens. And I think that basic confusion, as I write about in this book, Comfortably Numb, is the confusion between serious and persistent mental illness, which I work with folks with chronic paranoid schizophrenia, major depression. And so I knew that world working in shelters in New York City and seeing people on inpatient units and public mental health in Manhattan. That getting confused with what used to be called neurotic or the worried well, even those terms don't even, they're like old terms now. I always thought neurotic was an excellent, it's been stigmatized by sort of association with Freud, but I think neurotic, as a fairly neurotic person myself, is an excellent term. Those distinctions have dropped out. And so we bring a little bit, an echo of bringing the Factor Seven story, which is a very powerful drug for actually for hemophilia, for a blood clotting disorder. And it was used by the army outside of its FDA approved use for traumatic bleeding at some risk to creating blood clots and strokes in unwanted places. So it's a little bit of this American theme of the great guns without a sense of the nuance of the end user or the culture mirrors probably American foreign policy since uh, Vietnam, bringing in these great guns that work at some sort of theoretical level, but a complete lack of interest. And I would just say arrogance, and that might even be a positive. It's probably there's darker motives than that onto things that don't are not interested in the local conditions and confusing major disease with diseases and conditions that can be looked at in other ways. Now, you've seen firsthand how antipsychotics, right, actually can work, right, to alleviate some of the symptoms of serious psychological problems. And so is it just that there's just not enough money there to be made with the uh, people who have serious problems? I think you said somewhere in the book that, you know, the difference between psychotics and neurotics is that neurotics uh, pay. Right? that neurotics have a lot more money 
is that really what's driving the expansion? I mean, that's sort of the supply side, but there's also like a demand side, right? Is the demand side driven entirely by marketing or is there something about the approach to medicine that we have, which it makes this fertile ground for the type of marketing that the pharma companies engage in? I'm a little out of date. That book was published in 08. So I basically finished the research in 06. So I'm not so much up on the latest antipsychotics. I would say, well, the neurotics show up and they pay. That's a huge part of it. I was really on the front lines working in shelters and with people with severe mental illness in Manhattan in the 90s when these big ticket antipsychotics came out that were thought to revolutionize care. And my sense, not just sense, because I just saw it every day, that they worked amazingly well, I don't know, maybe a third of the time, remarkably well. People that were hearing voices all the time, the voices, psychotic voices, the volume would literally go down or occasionally they would just disappear. People would become much more active and have less negative affect and so on. And then about a third of the time they sort of worked and then about a third of the time they didn't do anything and they caused really, really, really bad side effects. And the systems didn't seem to really care about that differential response. And again, I think maybe this goes back to the psychotics not having the ability to advocate for themselves, the people with psychosis, in, to generalize. The side effects were huge weight gain, for example, leading to diabetes, studies that showed that some of the antipsychotics literally were taking 20 or 30 years off of people's lives. And that wouldn't play if it was an antidepressant that someone like I took. And so there's a way that they're the objections were just tossed aside. But again, I would go back to the systems have not changed. If you were to pick one thing that changed the commodification of psychiatric drugs, it was the television advertising of drugs. And New Zealand and the US then and now are still the only countries that do it. And so it's not far afield from this sort of American Wild West of grabbing highly potent sometimes effective, often not effective technological solutions without going to the undergirding issues. Well, you know, you talk about alternatives, CBT and DBT and stages of change, a bunch of these things. Why don't we see that as the first line of defense or the first intervention? Is it just because that's way too expensive, requires way too much in the way of resources? Or is it that it's more difficult, that the patients aren't interested because they want sort of a quick fix? Why is it that we don't look to that as the primary way of helping people with psychological distress? The drug companies. If I were to say one thing, it's the drug companies. Now, it was, again, I'm, I haven't thought about this book for a while, but it was, I think, 89 when drugs started appearing and Prilosec and everything started appearing on television. And that was, I remember thinking, you can't do that. So now there's entire generations that have grown up with the drugs as a commodity that you buy like beer. And then if you look, I know in the book, I look at the British National Institute of Care guidelines for mild to moderate depression. The first response is watchful waiting, very British sort of phrase, watchful waiting. It could be a life stressor. It could be something that passes in the wind. Then their next 
thing is counseling and probably more general counseling than if it's a more deep-seated or specific type of depression or OCD, cognitive behavioral therapy, then drugs. So our pyramid is exactly the opposite. And the antidepressants are actually can be quite effective for OCD. But in general, we've sort of overblown the efficacy. That is the first thing that we go to. And mental illness is nothing if not extraordinarily complicated. And we've grown up with even sort of advanced psychiatry. It's all this either or medicines or therapy, genes or character, uh, environment or hereditaries. And it's always and. It's always and. And for some reason, we can't seem to understand that. It's not that complicated. I remember quoting a really sophisticated academic psychiatrist. And he said, the best antidepressant in the world is exercise. And there's something in the American character that just likes to rush to fancy, expensive solutions. And again, it's played out in in the blood, couldn't be as different a book from Comfortably Numb, but you're making me think of all these parallels that were certainly in my head as I wrote them. Well, there's also parallels with the third book, right? Peace and Health, right? Which is really an account, once again, of some outsiders, right? One outsider in particular who is challenging, I guess, the medical establishment. And what's interesting about this is that over time, he became less and less of an outsider, right? As resources began to flow to the community health center. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that story and why is it such an important story? Because it says so much about how we think about health in general, right? Which is really something that is not just a medical phenomenon, but something that is all about one's position in society, right? Yeah. I wrote two books at once. I actually had two books out basically within six months. I had Peace and Health, the book you're referring to, and In the Blood. And very similar themes, the plot, if you will, of Peace and Health. It's a nonfiction book. It's about a guy who's uh, now 72. At age 22, he founded a what was then a free health clinic for the poor in the other side of the tracks part of town in Middletown, Connecticut, a small town. He, like Frank Hersey, had no medical credentials. The establishment was against him. As we speak now, it's one of the largest health centers for the country, serving the Medicaid population, what's called a federally qualified health center. It's in 30 states with telehealth. It's covering millions of lives. Just in Connecticut, what's now called the Community Health Center, vaccinated or tested 800,000 people against COVID. They formed the second mass vaccine site in the country in what, January 2021, two days after Dodger Stadium, all run and out of the mind of this guy, Mark Maselli, who's now 72 and is still the CEO of the Community Health Center. And he was driven the way Frank Hersey had a signature concept that let's take something away from blood rather than adding to it that no one had ever thought of. Mark Maselli whose genius is really community organizing. But his signature idea was healthcare is a right and not a privilege. And he was just obsessed with this idea. He would argue till three in the morning with somebody who disagreed with it when he was 22. 
He grew up in the civil rights era. He had a very important visit with his mother, who was a progressive Democrat involved in civil rights. They went to Alabama when Mark was six. Mark was stunned to see essentially shanty towns. But he came back to Middletown and he saw very similar conditions just in parts of town that he'd never seen before. His dad was a Wesleyan faculty member. And so he just, his determination is beyond belief. And he took this idea ran up against the medical establishment very quickly. In, in fact, they closed down his clinic within six months on a technicality. And he just wouldn't give up. And again, it goes to just sheer work ethic and breaking down a massive bureaucratic system. Very, Of course, the similarities to these stories were not lost in me as I was writing them. We, I think writers tend to write the same story over and over again. But I think also it speaks to he was ahead of his time in so many different ways he put patients on his board of directors in the first six months which would have been anathema in what you're putting a sick person to help run the organization that is now mandated by the federal regulations now and then what's very hot in healthcare, appropriately so driving a lot of the most progressive healthcare now i'm sure you know about it is the idea of the social determinants of health, that it's your zip code, not your genetic code, that really determines your health outcomes. Access to health care, your skin color, diet, access to information. And he had an intuitive understanding of the social determinants of health before people were writing books about it. And did his work in the poor part of Middletown. He's now appropriately very very successful and reasonably well compensated. He still lives in the North end of Middletown with the people that he wants to be with. So I guess I'm drawn, you know, I've, I've these last three books I've written. One was about a reformed gangster in New Haven, citizen outlaw. It came out about four years ago. I think of them as my Connecticut underdog series. So um, these three out of nowhere, the guy citizen outlaw is about a reformed gangster who now does what they call violence interruption he goes into the neighborhoods in New Haven that he used to terrorize and says to the kids, don't do what I did. Prisoner jail awaits you. He's negotiated truces between gangs. He's been very effective. So I guess the theme of these wildly disparate books is the solutions are in the least likely of places and they're simple solutions that are, there's certainly a lot of genius behind them, but I'm not sure how much expertise is behind them. The simplicity of genius, I think, is sort of the theme. And then breaking down the systems has been my theme. I'm ready to move on to something else, but that's what I've been at for way too many years. And turn to the first book, Songs from the Black Chair. I mean, do you see a little bit of yourself in all of these underdogs? Do you think of yourself as an underdog from Connecticut in any way? And when you decided to go to New York and work with these people, do you think you were equipped with the right tools or did you were you confident that you would acquire them as needed. Yeah. So you're referring to my first book, which is a memoir. And absolutely, I see myself as a Connecticut underdog. As a young man, I suffered pretty severely from OCD and came from a pretty academically privileged background. I went to Harvard. I dropped out of Harvard because of my OCD. I eventually finished. And that gave me you know, I was sort of on the road to becoming a doctor or a fancy professor. 
And I took a detour for 15, 20 years working in the New York City homeless system and then the criminal justice system and then started writing about it. And that's where all these books came from, essentially. So, yeah, the context of all of this is my own story of sort of identifying with outsiders. But I think I'd be careful of that because I'm now a little bit like Mark Maselli. I'm now to some degree a consummate insider. I am that professor, blah, blah, blah. But also, I think a little bit, not that combat in Iraq or Mogadishu is anything like New York City homeless system, but there might be a few similarities. I worked in the Bellevue Men's Shelter for a long time. It's not, I'm not saying it's a violent place. In fact, it's not really a violent place, but it's a psychologically violent place. And I saw what worked in practice. Then I started doing research at the Columbia Medical School and the Yale Medical School, you know, what I thought was valuable research. But it, my experience was from direct experience. So when I saw these drugs working and not working, it was I was running facilities. So I would see the changes. So I think I have a real interest in empirically what works as opposed to just sort of what's in the lab, which is a huge part of in the blood. And then I saw what heals people has a very broad base. And to simplify, social connectedness is huge. And it's just so happened, I had a knack for working with people with schizophrenia, diagnosed with schizophrenia. I just, I don't know, OCD is not schizophrenia, but there can be some little bit of similarities. I feel like I just sort of understood them. It was just something that came very easily to me. And I connected with people and I could see them connecting with me. A lot of stories did not work out, but a lot of them did. And then I worked with people that were very gifted and we ended up building very nice facilities and like really nice apartments, buildings and stuff for people that have been homeless. So I saw the social context making all the difference. And this was in the 90s when... It was drugs, 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 Prozac, 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 Prozac. And I was, I saw positive things from all of that, but I saw that the story was much, much more complicated and much more nuanced. And once again, the American thing of, we just don't seem to be interested in, wow, housing is a solution for homelessness as much as getting people the right drugs. The system is all sort of gearing them in one different way. Yeah, I think you mentioned that it's really all about the popularity of individual solutions as opposed to collective solutions. Last question. I mean, do you think that your firsthand exposure to this type of suffering, severe psychological suffering, HIV, this type of extreme unhappiness and misery, does that in any way inform your perspective on life? In the book, Comfortably Numb, do you stake out a position, which is that people should not immediately recoil from suffering in its mild forms and that they should embrace it and learn from it. Do you think that position comes from having been exposed to people with serious problems, serious psychological suffering? I don't want to romanticize suffering because suffering is suffering and all the romantic things of the genius that comes out of suffering, I think that's completely overblown and simplistic. I do think that... For me personally, I was very much on the route to becoming, I've become that person, but the much more conventional path to becoming an academic and a, probably, I probably would have been a philosophy teacher, who knows. My own experience with suffering put me on this totally different route, which I got a lot of crap for. What, why 
Harvard and Columbia grad working in shelters. My parents weren't totally happy with that. But it, first of all, is a fascinating journey. It's a journey I'm very proud of, but it wasn't an efficient journey. That's part of the reasons why I've written three books in four years. I feel like I've did a lot of other things, which I'm proud of, but I want to write more and wish I had gotten started earlier. But I think that um, it's given me a, 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 not just an academic sense of nuance. And uh, uh, there's a quote by William James, Henry James' brother, the Harvard psychologist of the 19th century. He was technically a philosopher, but he's really a psychologist. And he said, it's in the varieties of religious experience, this kind of masterwork, where he says, most people are gr- born on the first story of a house, as he's using it as a metaphor, and they stay on the first story. There's a certain subgroup that are born on the first story, and they experience sickness. He calls them the sick souls. And in order to survive, they move to the second story. And what he's implying is they tell a second story. And the subtext is that William James suffered very severely from depression and was exactly the person that he's writing about. I'm that person, to be completely frank. I'm someone who was born on the first story, had, I don't want to overblow my experience. It was never hospitalized. I functioned fine, but, well, not for a few months. But I had enough experience with it that I moved to the second story. And I've been telling those second stories. So I think if you look at all these pretty wildly different books, they're all second stories. And it's one of those imponderables. I'm, maybe I would have had a much easier time if I'd been able to stay in the first story, but I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing that is getting extremely well received and noticed and telling stories that other people wouldn't hear about otherwise. So is it worth it? I, I'll never know, but I guess if I were to pick it, I'd say for damn sure I'll take the second story. Well, it's a great place to be on and the second story. And these are, these are all wonderful stories. I highly recommend uh, checking them out. In the Blood is the latest one and also uh, Peace and Health. Charles, so thanks so much for joining me. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Excellent questions. Really, really you know, smart questions that kept me on my toes. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.